take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 is where we're at. We're going to continue our study in that chapter today. Actually, we're going to wrap up that chapter, so we've got a long way to go. Uh, I don't know if you uh, know this about me or not, but uh, I do love to work with my hands. Um, I am kind of handy, and I know what I'm good at, and I know what I'm not good at. So in regards to home repair, um, I can do some basic stuff, uh, but you want me... I'm your demo guy. I'm not your finished carpenter. Just so you know. What, you know where the wood comes together and forms the joint and it's perfectly lined? That's not me. Yeah, I'm going to throw the saw through the wood. I'll do some demo with the saw before I'll, I'll get that right. But um, what I have learned over the years, though, is that it's important that you have the right tool for the right job. Um, so, you know, even though the guy's got a tree and he's got a saw, that that's not going to cut it, right? It's also important that we we, no pun intended, uh, it's also important that we um, use our tools properly, right? So we don't want to get ourselves in a situation where we're be putting ourselves in danger because we're using the tool improperly. Today, we're going to be looking at Paul's and Barnabas's continuing journey uh, as they plant churches. Uh, they've left the church in Antioch, and now they're traveling around and they're planting churches. They've already made their way through um, Cyprus, and now they're sailing towards what is modern-day Turkey. And I, I don't, my mother and I don't coordinate, but uh, in a few weeks, my mother is traveling to Turkey. I don't, this is the kind of, you know, my parents are Mick and Pat, and the Mick and Pat show kind of works like this right now. Mom gathers up a bunch of her friends and travels internationally, and Dad stays home and uh, watches way too much Fox News. So uh, pray for him. Um, but mom, yeah, mom's going to Turkey. I don't, I don't make the, I don't plan these things. But uh, uh, anyway, that's where they're, that's where Paul and Barnabas are headed. And you know, as it turns out, last week we talked about the the, the nature of the battle between good and evil, and we we talked about and discussed how the nature of the battle is right here in the human heart. That's where the line is, the dividing line is. It's in the human heart, not the thing that pumps blood in our chest, but the seat of our mind, our will, and our emotion, the human heart. That's where the battle line is. People decide whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. Today, we're going to be witnessing, in a rather lengthy passage of text, we're going to be seeing the different weapons that come out in that battle, both on the side of good and on the side of evil. And that's kind of what, you know, as I read through the text, that's what drew my attention. And so the question that we're going to ask ourselves today the questions that we're going to ask ourselves today is this. In the battle for the human heart, what assets are commonly used by each side? Now, I'm going to admit to you that this is not an exhaustive list, meaning this is not all of the assets that good uses and evil uses, but we're going to see several tools, several weapons uh, in this war come out uh, in our text today. So let's just get started. We're going to start, I've broken this into basically two big sections. One is the Christian and one is the non-Christian. So let's look at the the tools, the weapons that the Christian uses. And number one is, well, yeah, number one is patience. Patience. Let me, let's read a little bit of the text here, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companion set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now let's just stop right there wait a minute, you say, they've left the church in Antioch, far behind them, they've gone across Cyprus, and now they're up into Turkey. Well, just like every state in the United States, I think, has a Springfield, and every state in the United States, well, most of them have a Bowling Green, you know, uh, Antioch is a pretty common name uh, for towns back then. So when Luke, who wrote Acts, talks about Antioch. He's talking about the third largest city in the Roman Empire, the where, where Paul and Barnabas came from. When he talks about a different Antioch, he's going to refer to it by its location, Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogues and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if, you've ha if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So, a few things to talk about here in terms of patience. First of all, uh, if, if you picked it up in the text, one of the things that we learned is John Mark, once they hit Turkey, John Mark leaves 
to go to Jerusalem. He leaves them. And we read later on in the book of Acts, we'll just, let's just go forward a few pages to Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15, verse 36. We're going to see that Paul was none too happy about this. So, and we learn about that a few chapters later, but let me just read it now. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This, this departure by John Mark was so irritating to Paul that later on he got in a fight with Saul, with uh, Barnabas about it. He got in a fight with Barnabas about it, and eventually they parted ways for a time. Uh, later there's going to be some restoration there, but let me just say it this way. Back in years ago, back when I was in Indiana, uh, I along with two other pastors, we started a, a camp, a summer camp for the kids in our churches. And um, there was three of us. And we each had our own different role. And if one of us would have abandoned ship, you know, you get maybe two days into camp, and then one says, that's it, I'm going home, I'm out of here, I quit. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, I would have probably been tempted to fold the whole thing up and not continue because one person out of a three-person team is a lot. And, um, and yet, we see Paul and Barnabas, they, um, they patiently persevere, though John Mark, who is probably a key assistant to them. I mean, he's probably doing all the gopher work so that they can minister the word of God to people. Um, he, he leaves them and leaves them high and dry. Uh, and this really irritated Paul to the point that he didn't want to put him back on his other missionary team later on. So that's one aspect of the patience that they show, just patiently enduring through, pers uh, persevering through adversity. But I also want to bring your attention, Paul and Barnabas do not arrive in the synagogue of this city and, de and demand to be heard immediately. In other words, they wait for those in charge of the synagogue to carry out their service, to read the law and the prophets and do all the things that they normally do, and then they wait to be recognized to speak. Even though they have an urgent message to share, they are wanting to share that message in a way that's done decently and in order. And that's a contrast to really a lot of the things that we see today. Uh, in our culture today, there's a lot of value placed on public protest. And in a public protest, it's not unusual to hear the following chant. What do we want? Whatever that is. When do we want it? What do we want? I don't know, whatever they want. And when do we want it? We want it now. And the, the goal of these public protests is to irritate, frustrate, to put pressure on public leadership to make, to make decisions that maybe they're perhaps not making or haven't become a priority to them yet. Paul and Barnabas do not operate in this way. They come into the synagogue, they wait patiently to be recognized, and then they share. Psalm 37, <clears throat> Psalm 37 says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way or the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I know it doesn't sound like it this day, uh, on days like this, and, and believe me when I tell you, the days that we live in today are days where it's hard. I'll just say it this way. I have to increasingly find myself intentionally working on my ability to be patient. There's all kinds of shenanigans going on in our culture today. Lies being told, leadership, corrupt leadership being exercised. And it's, it would be easy to say, that's it. And maybe, you know, snap a little bit. I'm planning on snapping on Tuesday, by the way. Tuesday's the day I'm going to snap. No, I'm not going to. No, just snap a little bit and to go and just start taking action. 
and, um, and, and that action would not be constructive at all. It would probably be more destructive. But that would be doing God's business man's way. And we've been instructed, we've been commanded to do God's business God's way. And so I just want to remind you that one of the tools, one of the weapons that Paul and Barnabas have in their tool bag is patience. Secondly, they bring respect. Respect. Paul and Barnabas show respect to the leadership of the synagogue and do not violate their authority. Uh, this is the way of Jesus Christ, right? We don't always think about it this way, but it is. It is the way of Jesus Christ. Now, who among us, is there anybody among us here who thinks for one second that when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, that is the religious body of people that were in charge of civil matters in Jerusalem, is there anybody in this audience today that, that, that doesn't think that Jesus could have, with a snap, with a word, maybe even with a thought, vaporized the entire Sanhedrin. Just like a Marvel movie. He could have just made him go, gone. Or, is there anybody in this audience that thinks that it would, be, it would have been beyond Jesus' capabilities when he was standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was proceeding to put the death warrant, the, the death sentence on him, that Jesus couldn't, again, with a snap, with a word, with a thought, have caused a lion to come out of nowhere and maul him and rip him limb from limb. God could have done that. Jesus could have done that. Well within his capabilities. No sweat. But he did not. Even knowing that they were corrupt, he paid respect because he understood God's bigger picture. He understood, as we should understand, that if he were to vaporize the Sanhedrin or if he were to bring down Pilate, people would view him, hear me, people would view him just as another in a list, in a long list, of human authorities who have governed and led by fear. And last time I checked, and I check often, when I read my Bible, I see a God who deals with us in love. He is filled with mercy and grace. And this is the God in Jesus. We see him doing his work that way, enduring corrupt leadership, being sentenced to death, and giving his life for the good of others. Of course, on the third day, rising again. But he's doing that to show us a new and different way. And he expects Paul and Barnabas to walk in that new and different way. He expects us to walk in that new and different way. And so we're told in God's words things like this. When it comes to our governmental authorities, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority that exists except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And in terms of our church authorities, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's a terrifying thought if you're me. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. They came with patience and they came with respect. Brothers and sisters, let us not drift from putting these tools, these weapons uh, in our armory when we go to battle with evil. Third, they brought reason. Let me continue reading in this text, uh, beginning in verse 16. So Paul, so they're in the Sanhedrin, they've been, or sorry, sorry, they're in the synagogue, they've been recognized by the Jewish leadership to speak, and says this, so Paul, verse 16, stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with, up, with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with, the, with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. 
All this took about 450 years. And after he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, uh, sorry, and after that he gave them judges until, the pro until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was in, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served his purpose, served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells it, even if one tells it to you. Let's stop right there. Paul, in his sermon, one of the longest recorded sermons of Paul's, uh, Paul, in his sermon, tells about, or gives, I'm sorry, a logical flowing, rational argument of how Jesus fits into the entirety of God's plan, starting all the way back with Abraham and proceeding through their sojourn in, in, in Egypt and then their time in the promised land. Even the kingdom, he mentions the kingdom of Saul and of David. He explains very clearly how Jesus was this one that was foretold by the prophets, that in some of the Psalms that people maybe have mistakenly attributed those characteristics and attributes to David. No, in fact, it's not David. See, David is dead and his body has rotted away. It's corrupt. No, those, those Psalms, the psalmist, which is often David, is referring to this other one, Jesus, who died, was condemned by his own people. By the way, this, I've just been meditating on this lately, and I haven't fully fleshed it out yet, so this is a half-cooked thought. It had to be the Jews to condemn Christ. Had to be. If it was any other people, other than the people that brought forth Jesus, we would hold a grudge. 
I think. I think knowing our human sinfulness, we'd hold a grudge against that people. But because it was one of his own people, because Jesus is himself a Jew, I think it had to be the Jews that did that. Anyway, but, but the Jews rejected him. Paul argues in this very logical argument. The Jews rejected him. He died on the cross, and on the third day he rose again, and therefore he did not see corruption. This is the Christ. And so he is the one that anyone who believes on him will receive this forgiveness of sins, which the law of Moses could not accomplish. Not by following rules, not by following religious procedures will you get the forgiveness of sin, only by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is what he's proclaiming in a very logical way. Now contrast this with our time that we live in right now in 2022, where so much of what we see in the world, in, in this postmodern world, is judged right or wrong based on how it makes you feel. How does it make me feel? If it makes me feel bad, it must be wrong. If it makes me feel good, it must be right. Well, last time I checked, a cheeseburger and onion rings makes me feel so good. An exercise makes me feel bad in the short term, right? But... It's exactly the We don't go by our feelings. We don't go by our feelings. Our feelings can lead us into a very, very, very bad place. Let me give you an illustration. I said earlier that I like to work on things. Sometimes I do car repair. Again, you want me to work on your uh, brakes, not on your uh, paint job. I'm going to be terrible at that. Um, it's like demo, right? I'm good at demo. Anyway, car repair is costly these days. And let's say that your car is overheating. You know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, it's, it's steaming and you smell a coolant smell, that sweet smell of antifreeze. And, um, and you bring it to me. And I've advertised myself as a car whisperer and a car healer. Sounds like me, doesn't it? Totally sounds like me, the car whisperer. And, and here's the deal. I tell you that for $25, I will talk to your car and find out what's wrong. And then I'll just simply place my hand on the hood and make it well again. So you come to me and I talk to your car and it tells me what's wrong. And I place my hand on the hood and, and I say it's well and you pay me $25 and you go on your way. I know, right? Fully confident that this worked. Fully confident, 100%. Well, what happens if you drive that car for another hour? Well, you're not going to make it an hour. If it's overheating, you're probably going to blow some uh, blow some gaskets, first of all, and then you're going to probably start to warp the engine until the pistons uh, overheat in the piston in the sleeves, and it's going to lock up the engine in your toast, and your engine repair bill or your car repair, repair bill just went from something that could have cost as little as $10 to change a thermostat all the way up to thousands of dollars to change an engine. Folks, there are those out there that would tell you that our faith is grounded in feelings. It is not. I know this sounds a bit oxymoronic. Let me flesh it out. Our faith is grounded in facts and reason. In studying the history of Israel, in studying the, the life of Jesus Christ, in studying the history of Christianity, through the mess that human beings have made by our sin, we have reasonable, not only biblical, but extra-biblical evidence to tell us that Jesus was a real human being, that he really did live, that he really did have heavy influence in his time, that he genuinely did die on the cross, and even non-biblical sources cite that he rose again the third day. At least they report that that's what people say. People say that he rose again on the third day. Objectively, we can say that whenever one of the major news publications like Time Magazine or something like that, whenever they set their minds to think about who has been the greatest human being that ever influenced humanity, they keep coming back to one person, Jesus Christ, again and again and again. It's almost annually they'll publish the How Jesus Changed the World issue, at least they used to. And so... The, this evidence, oh, by the way, there's a, there's a group in our church that's getting ready to travel over to Israel for a tour. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in Israel, on the daily, on, the, on a daily basis, they are discovering archaeological finds. They're uncovering archaeological evidence that points to the reality of the biblical account. 
the most famous of which is, you know, for a while, scholars, scholars meaning people with too much education in a university setting who don't have a firm grasp on reality, postulated, for, there was a period in church history where there was a group of scholars that postulated that Pontius Pilate is not a real person. Pontius Pilate never existed. It's all made up in the biblical writer's imagination. Until one day when over in, I believe it was Caesarea Philippi, they were restoring, restoring, yeah, uh, one of the outdoor amphitheaters. And one of the stone seats where they, you know, they, they made a stair step where they could sit. One of the stone seats had dislodged. They were going to take it out, clean it up, and put it back in. When they took it out and flipped it over to clean it up, it said it was basically the house sign of Pontius Pilate. So, if we can believe, if we can trust, there's good evidence and facts to believe that Jesus was a real human being, that he did, in fact, live on this earth, have heavy influence, that he died on the cross and on the third day rose again, then the other things that God tells us in his word, like six-day creation, can be trusted. I wasn't there. And you know what? No scientist was. No evolutionary biologist, no scientist was there at the foundation of the world. And if they were honest with you, they would say, we have theories, but we don't know either. So when God tells us in his word that he created the earth in six literal days, I believe it. Because everything else that he's told us is true. And many, much of what he's told us is open to scholarly scrutiny. But I, I think we also believe it. I know we also believe it because we have been given the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. But we are to use our reason. Even Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they are be white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We can use our brains. They also come with a sense of history. Uh, Paul invokes David. He invokes Abraham. He talks about Egypt and the Exodus and, and uh, the time of the judges and Samuel. Um, he has a firm grasp on the history of the world, specifically the history of the Jewish people. And we're all part of the story that began with the creation of the universe. In Romans, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. I would encourage you to read your Bible and, and, and study some history. It's good to know uh, the history of the world, the history of the United States, you get the idea. They came with truth. They came with the truth. Now listen, I don't know why you're here this morning. Perhaps it's just part of your Sunday routine. But let me just, let's just refresh our memories here for just a minute about why we're here. When we, walk out of this, when we walk out of this building, we are entering a world where many, I don't know if it's a majority, I don't know, I don't, I don't have exact numbers for you, but there are many who believe in a completely different world and life view than we do, who have a completely different understanding of, of how we are to use things like money, a different understanding of sexuality and its use. And, and abuse, a completely, understand, a completely different understanding of, of the value of the various things in life, whether that be education or, or the use of authority. Or, we're, gonna, we're, we're walking out of this place into a world that's very mixed up. And so one of the things that we, one of the things that God has given us in his command to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, is to come together once a week at least and to be reminded of the truth of why we're here, of what the function of this life is. And if we've lost track of that over the, over the previous part of our life, to make adjustments. Meaning perhaps we've bought into materialism and it's time to make an adjustment on that. To stop finding our value in how much we can accumulate and start finding our value in Christ and the proclamation of his word. 
You get the idea. Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what is that truth that they come to, to pronounce? Well, it's the next weapon, the next tool in their tool bag, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that they didn't come, and the first time that they had a chance to get up, Paul didn't bait them by saying, let me tell you about the latest news from Jerusalem, the latest news from Antioch, and I just got back from Cyprus, and boy, are my arms tired. He didn't do that. He got up and he simply proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that they could understand. He proclaimed to them, because, because he's in a synagogue, they knew that they were sinners. Because they knew about the sacrificial system and they knew about the, the, the atonement for sin that was necessary. So they, they knew that. And so he, he dove right into uh, connecting their history with the fact that, that this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that could fulfill the Old Testament law, that could do what the Mosaic law could never do, and to grant them forgiveness of sin through their faithful belief in him. And I, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in the text, he said, and it's available to all people, Jews and non-Jews alike. And it's available to you. The good news of Jesus Christ is available to you. You are a sinner. God is holy. He cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. And so left, to your, left in your own sinfulness, you will die and you will be separated from him forever. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're here and you have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus, I, the weird, strange, odd, perplexing thing about this life is that you can be young and you can be healthy, you can be physically fit, and you're not promised tomorrow or even the rest of today. If you have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, Pastor Aaron will be up here after the sermon. I will be out in the hall. Please come talk to us and learn how you can know for sure that you are going to heaven when you die. So they came armed with the good news. They also came armed with boldness. I, I don't, let me read the rest of the, let me read the rest of the account here. Beginning in verse 42, Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So this sermon that Paul gave received wide acclaim. They were all happy. Come back next Saturday. Come back next Sabbath. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, when they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So some people were already turning to Christ. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. So for about a week, things were really buzzing, and everybody gathered to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw that the when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and begin, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. I'll put that in 2022 language. They begin to contradict him and call him names. You good for nothing, traitor to our people, whatever. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it as... Let me, I'm going to read that with more emphasis, sorry. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet again against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They brought boldness. 
Paul and Barnabas are going into hostile territory, right? They're carrying a, a non-Jewish message. It is, in fact, a Christian message. It should be received by the Jews because it connects Jesus and their hope for a Messiah to the Old Testament and brings everything to its full fruition. But they spoke with boldness. And when the people turned on them, and in this case, I believe the Jews are the Jewish leadership in control of the synagogue, when they turned against them, Paul and Barnabas did not tuck tail and run. Instead, they turned and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Remember, Jesus said, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, to the non-Jew. It was, but since you, are, you have thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas simply said, you're not going to listen to us? Fine. We're going to turn and deliver the message to those that will listen who are not Jews. Now, before I move on from this point, I just want you to see something that perhaps you haven't seen before. When's the last time in your memory can you think of someone or some people entering into a city and receiving wide acclaim and just everybody was stirred up and the whole city was happy to see them and then a week later, things did not go well. Well, that was Jesus. When he entered Jerusalem, he entered what we called the triumphal entry. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a week later, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Paul and Barnabas, in entering into this city, and in entering into this synagogue to share the good news, and receiving the wide acclaim at the beginning, but then later on, get out of here the message to get out of here, are in a small way, not exactly the same way, but in, the, in a small way, sharing in the sufferings, partaking in the sufferings of Christ himself. And folks, this is what Christian witness is going to look like. It's going to look like, that it, and it's going to require some boldness because there's going to be folks that are going to be willing to come to Christ and those that are going to start to call you names, revile you, and work to get you out of their town. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1. Okay, two other things, and then I'll turn to the non-believers. They brought the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, it says in the, at, the end of the, at the end of this uh, chapter that they were filled with joy, and also filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is their helper, teaching them to say whatever they need to say when they need to say it. We learn more about that in the New Testament. We also see that they, the, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. If we will yield ourselves to Him, yields all kinds of fruit, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You get the idea. And then lastly, they came, one of the tools that they had, and this is a big one, they came with a joyful attitude. We live in a time today where everybody needs to win. Everybody needs to get an A on the test. Everybody needs to succeed. If you don't succeed, if you have a little bit of failure, you fe we feel very down about that here in the West. I just want us to adjust our, our attitudes here a little bit because gospel work, and this is just as true in my life here at Delaware Bible Church as I think it is with Paul and Barnabas, gospel work is work that is going to meet with acceptance and it's going to meet with adversity consistently. Consistently. So what were they joyful about then? If they've got these mixed results, what are they joyful about? Are they joyful about being forced out of town? Probably not. Were they joyful that some people did get saved? Probably so. But here's the attitude adjustment that I think that we really need. Our job is to sow the seed. Our job is to water the seed. And if they can leave this town, Antioch at Pisidia, if they can leave this town knowing that they were faithful to that task, they can leave filled with joy. Because their job is to sow the seed, to water the seed, and let God have the increase. To let God do His work. They don't need to count salvations. That's God's work. They need to be faithful at sharing the gospel and ministering the word to people. 
Paul says later on in Romans, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If we can do that, we can be filled with joy. Now, I want us to just reflect a minute on this list before we finish up. Look at this. Do these look like the weapons of warfare to you, in, at least in a conventional sense? Like if you were in Russia and Ukraine right now, would you want to be armed with patience, respect, reason, history, truth, good news, boldness, the Holy Spirit, and a joyful attitude? Doesn't sound like there's going to be much carnage from that, right? It, it, defeating the enemy anyway. These are the weapons that God has given us and more. These are some of the weapons that God has given us, the tools, and we are to do, again, God's business, God's way, not God's business, man's way. So let's turn our attention to the non-Christian. There's just a few here. Number one, and it's a big one, that they brought to the table is jealousy. Everyone seems to be going well in old Antioch of Pisidia. After their first sermon in the synagogue, the city is excited. It's electric. You can feel the energy working through the city as word gets passed along. These men have come to our city, and they're telling us things, and it's good news. People are uh, given, granted the forgiveness of their sin. However, the next Sabbath, when a large crowd says almost the whole city, including the Gentiles, gathered the, the Jews. The text says the Jews, but the commentaries say it's probably the, the leaders of the synagogues were filled with jealousy. What were they filled with jealousy over? Could be several things. They could, they could be saying to themselves, look, we have been the religious authorities in this town for a long, long time, and here comes this Paul and Barnabas. And who are they? They're, they're speaking a new message. I mean, if the, if the people in Jerusalem executed Jesus, they probably had a good reason for it. Who knows what they were thinking? Maybe it was their ability to draw such a large crowd. Maybe it's because the crowd consisted of Gentiles, and they said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. We are the holy ones. What are these Gentiles doing? I don't know. But your mind can imagine that uh, these people these religious leaders had many reasons to become jealous. Today, there is a big movement afoot in our world to, to be jealous of those who are in positions of power and authority, to, to people who have some wealth, people who have some privilege, whatever, and to say, we've got to cut them down. We've got to, we've got to take them out. They're the ones that are ruining everything. They're the ones that are causing our lives to be miserable. And see, jealousy is a very powerful thing. It's a very negative thing. And I will grant you that people that do achieve some level of authority do, can often become corrupt. And perhaps that's what, ha well, oft that's probably what happened with these Jewish leaders in the synagogue of Antioch at Pisidia. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4, there's a passage of Scripture that I love. 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4, it says, The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout over the earth. These Jewish leaders had the opportunity. They had the opportunity to embrace the message of Paul and Barnabas, to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ, and to use their powerful, influential station to say, look, listen to these guys. They know what they're talking about. Listen to them. They're speaking the truth. It's all connects. We, went, we spent the week studying our, our, our scriptures, and we, we believe what they're saying is true. But jealousy drove them in a, in a different direction, in a direction where they made the people say, these, these people are no, these Paul and Barnabas are no good. They're, they're trash. We need to get them out of here. Don't you follow them. One of the works of the flesh, right before Paul lists out the fruits of the Spirit, he lists out the works of the flesh, and one of those is jealousy. They also bring 
corp, uh, corrupt authority. Corrupt authority, meaning they're using, I, I mentioned already, they're using their power, their positions of authority as leaders of the synagogue to do good? No, to protect their own positions. James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Somebody told me after the first ser service today that J. Vernon McGee, a theologian, has isolated this verse, James 3.16, to be the definition of worldliness. Jealousy. I want for myself. Self, I'm going to destroy anything that doesn't give me what I want. And selfish ambition, I'm going to get for myself. I'm going to build for myself. I'm going to earn for myself. And it says where that exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. If you can't see that in our world today, then you must be blind. Because it's everywhere. They also bring influence. Influence. What's, what's the text say? But the Jews, verse 50, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They went and found the people, the men and women that everybody trusts, that everybody knows as being powerful and influential people, and they got them on their side. How? We don't know. But in doing all this, they put pressure on Paul and Barnabas to leave, and they drove them out. Do not be deceived, the Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. And then finally, they brought persecution. Persecution. They drove them out. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. They got them out of there. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just pause before I finish this up, and this will just take a minute, but let me just say this. Paul and Barnabas, as I stated earlier, are simply experiencing, in a smaller way than Jesus did, but they're simply experiencing the way of Jesus Christ. This world is a messed up place, and the battle between good and evil that's being fought within the human heart is going to manifest itself each and every day that we're on this planet. There's going to be people that are going to say, uh, that are going to respond. They're going to come to the end of themselves and they're going to say, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. I submit myself to Jesus Christ. And there's going to be others that say, get out of here, you non-scientific, control freak Christians who think that you know everything and just want to tell us all what to do with our bodies and with our choices. You monsters, be gone. This is par for the course. This is where we live. And we have to accept that Jesus himself told us that if we follow him, we will be persecuted. So the answer to the big question today is this. In the battle for the human heart, we must take up the tools that God has provided and use them. And we leave the results to God. And again, I draw a contrast between the, the tools that we are given, that Paul and Barnabas used that we are given and commanded to use versus the tools that the world uses. We are to not to take those up lest we look just like them. All right, in terms of possible application, a few things come to my mind. First of all, don't fall for the lie that we're, all, that we're going to win every battle. The truth is, is that we carry out the orders of our leader and he provides the victory. We are going to face adversity. Not everyone is going to want to hear a Christian message, and not everyone we share the gospel with is going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That is to be expected. Again, you can be filled with joy if you sowed the seed, or if you watered the seed, and you let God give the increase. You have faithfully done your job. But many Christians, I think, Say, well, we're not getting the results. We must not be doing this right. Let's stop. You've just fallen for, a you've fallen into the trap of the evil one if you do that. But secondly, select, uh, and I did have somebody come up to me after the first service and say, I know exactly what I need to work on, and I'm going to start working on it right now. Select one of the Christian's weapons above that need cultivation in your life. Make a plan and begin. I've listed a bunch of resources down there uh, in the outline. I'm not going to go through them. Uh, but I've got more uh, suggestions if you want them. 
And then finally, I would, I would encourage you to incorporate into your prayer time a prayer for gospel opportunity each day. Lord, please put into my path someone who needs to hear from you today. Whether they once followed Jesus and they've kind of fallen off the way a little bit and they need to be encouraged to get back on the path or they've never heard the good news of your son Jesus. Give me opportunity today. And then when God presents the opportunity, seize it. Our great Heavenly Father, the one who is perfect, not one stain or blemish is on your record, Father. You are all-powerful, almighty, all-present, holy, holy, holy. What does this mean, Father, that you look down upon our sinful lives and have decided in your grace and your mercy to redeem us by sending your only son, Jesus. It's incredible. It's incredibly humbling. Not only do you offer to rescue us from our sin, but you then take our broken lives and ask us to set them to the task of participating in the work that you're doing here. What is this? Thank you, Father. Thank you for not relegating our lives to just sitting in corners making widgets. But in the making of those widgets, the carrying out of whatever vocation you've placed us in, there will be people who do not know you, or there will be people that need to hear from you, and we can be your representatives if we will walk in your way if we will understand your word, and if we will open our mouths when those opportunities present themselves. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity. I pray that we would be faithful in the role that you've placed us in. In Jesus' name, amen.